Hi everyone, welcome to the Ecom Business Hacks podcast. I'm your host Rod Bland and in this podcast I talk about how you can get better results from your Instagram and Facebook marketing, from your email marketing and the many lessons that I've learned from being in the e-commerce business for the last 20 years. Enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Nick Savatis, who's the founder and director of Atico, which is known as Australia's most ethical fashion brand. So I've got Nick here today to tell us about his story of how Etico got started and what they're up to today. Nick, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity to share our story, Rob. All right. It's been a while since we've spoken and I'm interested. There's a lot of things about Etico that I don't know, even though we've done a bit of work together in the past. So I suppose the first question is how did you come up with the idea for Etico in the first place? Yeah, I've been asked this a few times and I'm trying to think what's the short answer, but Basically, I've been interested in ethical fashion for quite a long time because growing up in Melbourne during the 1960s and 70s, my mother used to work in the fashion industry when I was quite young. And she used to make garments in our lounge room for big and small fashion brands and was only paid a few cents to make garments, which was sold for a lot more than what she was paid for. And we struggled financially as a family when I was growing up. And I couldn't work out why my mum was paid so little. And I remember going to a shop in the city centre when I was about 11 years old and seeing some clothing that my mother had sewn being sold for, I think it was close to $50, which now doesn't sound that much, but in the early 1970s, it was actually quite expensive. And I remember my mum was being paid about 15 cents, 15 to 30 cents her garment and my 11 year old mind couldn't understand how the capitalist system works that workers like my mum were being paid piece rates to make garments which were being sold for a lot more but what do you do about it as an 11 year old I was actually visiting the shop with an older cousin of mine and when we went back home and told my mother she just shrugged her shoulders and basically that's the way the world the cookie crumbles and that's how the system works when I was older in high school I started to hear about the use of child labor and sweatshop labor in the fashion industry or in the sports industries. And that didn't really resonate with me that well, but what do you do about it as a high school student? Once again, you can't do much about it. And, but when I was at university in the early 1980s, some of the major sports brands were implicated in the use of child labor and slave labor and sweatshop labor. So I used to go into shops and ask them if they could guarantee that the clothing and the footwear and even the sports gear they were selling was free of child labor or sweatshop labor. And the reality is in the early 1980s, no one really knew, no one really was interested in how these things were being supplied to us. As a university student, there wasn't much I could do about it. So I just resorted to wearing secondhand clothing and secondhand footwear for most of my university studies. That's how you took a stand. Yeah, that's all I could do. But then uh, I graduated as a high school teacher and uh, I used to talk to kids about the impact of globalization. I'm trying to think what year this would have been. It would have been in the uh, late 1980s. And the kids were really upset, especially when I show them photos or videos of child labor and sweatshop labor. But then they'd still turn up to school wearing the very brands they were doing it. And you can't really blame the kids. And uh, during the 1980s, teachers were perceived or had self-perception as being a bit left of center. And I certainly would have fit into that kind of category. 
And we used to sit in the staff room, this is teachers, we used to sit in the staff room talking about the evils of the capitalist system. But then when it came time to buying school uniforms or buying sports gear for the sports department, we wouldn't even think about how the products we were buying were sourced. We'd always just buy the cheapest ones. So we were just as hypocritical as everyone else. So in the eighties, I was aware of the issues and, um, around that time, Save the Children at Oxfam started putting out reports about the level of exploitation in the sports and fashion industries. And in the late 1980s, I moved to the Northern Territory with my young family to work as an adult educator. And I was meant to be running literacy numeracy programs on remote indigenous communities. But when I got there, it was pretty obvious there was no jobs in the communities. So I was given permission by my media supervisor to start creating small micro businesses on remote indigenous communities. And that way I realized that business doesn't always have to be a negative. I mean, business can actually do something positive. This day and age, you call what we were doing social enterprise. I'm not sure whether you've heard, but it seems to be flavor of the month. Social enterprise is a big thing at the moment, but in the late 1980s, we'd never heard of that expression, but I was involved in setting up quite a few social enterprises on remote indigenous communities. And that was a pretty exciting time for me. It's probably the best job I ever had. And we did everything from setting up a community laundromat to a slaughterhouse, to a screen printing business, even to a video conferencing network. So basically yeah, creating employment or remote communities and providing better services. And all the businesses were actually owned by the indigenous communities that we were working on. I did that for nearly six years. And when I came back to Melbourne, I tried to find work in this social enterprise space, but I just wasn't successful. And then I thought, why not set up my own business for good, my own social enterprise. I didn't lose my concern about how products were being sourced. And I thought there must be a market out there for products, which were genuinely ethically made. And at the time, I also was interested in environmental sustainability. I thought there must be a market for something ethically made and eco-friendly as well. And I picked up the distribution rights for a brand called No Sweat, which was the world's first ethical fashion brand or ethically focused fashion brand. And I was the Australian distributor. This is around 2003. And uh, it was actually founded by a group of activists from North America. They were all kind of labor rights activists and who were concerned about sweatshop labor and slave labor. And we did quite well. This is in the really early days of the internet. I sold thousands of sneakers. I didn't actually have an online shop as such, but we had a website and people could just send us emails with what they wanted. And I can't remember how we used to take payments, but we set it up so you can actually download the order form print it out and then send it back to us with the money. But uh, it was a one person operation. I was just doing it from the back of my garage, but we sold about 13,000 pairs of sneakers over a two, three year period of time. And uh, I did that for, so this is between, I think it was about 2003. Yep. Up to about 2006, I was distributing the No Sweat brand. And around that time I thought, and why not create my own brand rather than sell someone else's brand? Why not create my own brand? And as much as I love and respected the guys behind No Sweat, they were really good union activists. They weren't really good marketers or even business people. I was finding that I was having to develop my own marketing material. So I thought, 
why not do the whole thing just myself? And I started with Edico Sports Balls because around that time, the fair trade system was introduced into Australia. And at the time when fair trade was introduced in Australia, the only products that you could buy, which were fair trade certified was basically coffee and chocolate. Actually it was coffee and tea. And uh, I wasn't interested in either of them, but I was interested in sports gear. So Edico is the first non-food company to be certified fair trade. So that was around 2006. And uh, then I just gradually started building up the brand. So in 2007, I introduced Edico sneakers. And 2008, I introduced Edico clothing. And uh, now we've got the biggest range of genuinely ethically made, genuinely eco-friendly clothing and footwear. Our products are both ethically made and eco-friendly. But the reality is the priority for me has always been the ethical part, making sure that workers in supply chains are working in safe conditions, that there is no child labor, that the workers are getting paid living wages. It may not sound like a big thing, but in this day and age, it's amazing how few brands in Australia can actually prove that they pay workers in overseas supply chains a living wage. I'll go on more about that, but you mentioned when you introduced that Etika was Australia's most ethical fashion brand. I'm not sure whether you're aware of it, but about three weeks ago at the National Online Retailers Sustainability Awards, we actually were awarded the Best All-Round Sustainable Retailer Award. I did hear about that. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. And they gave it to us, not just because we are trying to keep our environmental footprint to an absolute minimum, but they gave it us primarily because we showed that looking after your fellow human beings was also a high priority. And uh, yeah, so pretty proud of the fact that it's this small three person Brunswick based brand was able to gain that award over much larger organizations with a lot more resources. That's taken us from the early 1980s all the way to 2007. So one of the first questions I have is after you, you had the no sweat brands, so that was 2003. And then when you started with this Etico sports balls, how did you go about finding a manufacturer that fits your criteria for those products? It was a bit of a challenge in the early days. And basically we had to find factories that had the capacity and the skills to actually produce the kind of quality products that we needed. In the 1960s, 70s and 80s, the center of sports ball production was actually a town in Pakistan called Sialkot. And basically every big sports brand was sourcing balls from there. But in the 80s, you know, a lot of that production moved to China and we found one particular factory and we, as in myself and one other company that's based in the UK, we together, we actually approached this sports ball producer who was losing more and more business to the Chinese manufacturers. And we told them that we would buy from them if they were prepared to go down the path of becoming fair trade certified. And that's not an easy thing to do because they had to allow outside inspectors to visit their premises. They had to allow unions to operate within their factory. And they had to also work towards paying workers living wages. All things that weren't anathema, but it wasn't something they were totally 
committed to, but they saw as a business opportunity so they could do something that Chinese manufacturers couldn't do. And do you still use that same manufacturer today? Yeah, we haven't changed. One reason why we could get good rankings in ethical supply chains is that we've been committed to working with the same suppliers for many years. We don't play one supplier off another. Even though it's been challenging sometimes because, you know, sometimes they haven't done the right thing or they've made mistakes, which cost us dearly, but they do make amends and we kind of stick with them and yeah, we will stick with them for quite a long time. I can't see at the moment, there's no reason to move from them. And we started off buying sports balls from them, but then they started making footwear for us as well. So we convinced them to go down the path of making footwear. Yeah. So. Our sports balls and our footwear come from the one factory in, in Pakistan. Yeah. Interesting. I've actually, I think I've got a pair of those sneakers when you had a sale on there, cause I've got a pretty large foot and you had some, okay. I think there was some size 12s that were like half the price. So I grabbed some and that was probably 18 months ago. I wear them all the time still. And I like them cause they're just flat. I like shoes that you can feel the earth. A lot um, of people who work out in gyms like wearing them because hmm. of that reason. They are the Converse style sneaker, which are popular with people who work out in gyms. Yeah. And they don't even look like they're going to fall apart anytime soon. They remind me of a pair of, I've got a pair of Sperry. I don't know whether Sperry is an ethical brand, by the way, but Sperry boat shoes. And I've had them for 15 years and I am still not able to wear them out. They were very expensive at the time, but they're still the way that they're made at the very least is they're very well made. So that's well, what they remind me of. The longest we've had anyone tell us that the sneakers have lasted for is about eight years so far. We get quite a few people telling us that they get about five years use of it. Yeah, that's It really gets, it gets down to how, how hard you are in wearing them. And they're not designed for walking, doing bush walking. Yeah, they're just nice to wear as you're walking down Sydney Road and looking cool. So how did you progress from the, so the sports balls and then the sneakers was 2007 yeah. footwear? And, and then I guess the other clothing items came after that. How did that come about? Yeah. The clothing comes from a different company. Around that time, I heard that this is in the, about 2006, 2007, a group of farmers in India called the Chitna Organic Farmer Cooperative was set up. I'm not sure whether you've heard about the highest suicide rate amongst Indian cotton growers, but during the 1990s and early 2000s, it was astronomical. Um, I remember watching. Do you remember on Channel 9, there used to be the Sunday program? It was a current affair program. I think it stopped in the early 2000s, but I remember watching a segment. It was like a foreign correspondent, but on Sunday mornings. But that, they did a story about the highest suicide rate amongst Indian cotton growers. And a Dutch NGO called Solidarity had set up a project where they were trying to encourage cotton growers in India to move to cotton growing. Long story short. Monsanto had gone into India during the late 1990s and early 2000s and encouraged cotton growers to move to GM cotton seed. Oh, and, GM um, genetically modified. Modified cotton seed, yeah. And uh, it was quite expensive and you also had to buy specific herbicides. Oh, was it herbicides or pesticides? We got. You had to buy specific chemicals to go with that genetically modified cotton seed and a lot of Indian cotton farmers didn't have the kind of money that was required. So they had to borrow money and it's hard for Indian farmers to borrow money. It's hard for them to go into a bank and just borrow money. Mm. And so what a lot of them did, they went to their local loan sharks. Mm. This is pretty common in mm. India. Yeah. 
with the local loan sharks. So I had to pay astronomical interest rates. So I remember at one stage hearing they were paying 12% interest per month, not per year, some astronomical. Anyway, a lot of them got into financial trouble because there was a glut of cotton. Solidarity set up the Chetner Organic Farmer Cooperative. And uh, I remember visiting India around 2007. And I met members of the cooperative quite early when there were about 300 farmers in the cooperative. And uh, yeah, they started growing cotton using organic cotton growing methods, which was a lot less expensive than using GM cotton seed. And uh, they were keen on getting a higher price for their cotton. They were getting a higher price for their cotton because it was organic and there's a premium to be paid for organic cotton. Mm -hmm. They actually have become quite successful. The cooperative now is made by about 7,000 farmers. Wow. And with a lot of their profits, sorry, some of their profits, they've actually invested in the factory that makes our garments. So they're not just making money from selling the raw materials. They're also making money from the final product as well. And they've also divested into other crops as well. So they're not just relying on cotton for their livelihoods. And uh, yeah, when I heard about these cotton growers, I reached out to them and they told me about their factory as well. And yeah, then I thought, okay, I was selling ethically made sports gear and sneakers. Why not sell t-shirts and hoodies as well? I saw Edigo as being a street fashion brand for people who cared about their fellow human beings. So when you think of street fashion, you think of sneakers, you think of t-shirts, you think of hoodies. And uh, yeah, it just kept on expanding it. We've introduced underwear a while ago and try to think what our latest thing, I suppose our latest is just expanding our footwear range, but uh, yeah, I'm not aware of any other ethical or eco brand, which has got as wide range of products as we have. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it. I can see us expanding into other products. We get asked by consumers to introduce other products. We're being hassled to introduce organic tracksuit pants and even organic fair trade jeans as well. So it's possible. It's just a matter of trying to raise the capital to do it. Yeah. There are other choices for people, I guess. That's like that, that if somebody wanted to go and buy fair trade or ethically made and sourced jeans, for example, you really got, like that you got two brands in Australia, Nudie and Outland Denim, and both of them selling their jeans for around $300. $300 a pair. What I've been trying to do with Edico is keep our prices not cheap, but we try to keep them affordable. So our sneakers, which look remarkably similar to that well-known sneaker brand that I mentioned before. Well, it starts with a C, yeah. Yeah. We basically sell them at the same price as that they do, even though they cost us about 200% more to make. Hmm. And our underwear is basically the same price as bonds. Our, our rubber thongs are the same price. Actually, they're less expensive than Javiana's. Hmm. The only other brand who's doing ethical clothing at the level that we are is Patagonia. I'm not talking about volume, I'm just talking about applying sustainability and social impact is Patagonia. And you're paying about 20, 30% more Patagonia's brand than you are for ours. Hmm. Yeah, at Edigo, we're trying to make 
being ethical, being eco-friendly, affordable rather than a middle-class luxury. And the only way I've been able to do that is by just keeping my overheads as low as possible. Perhaps a question for those who are in a situation similar to where you were in 2006, when you started with the sports balls, somebody who's been selling someone else's brand like you were for no sweat brand. And they're going, okay, now we want to find a manufacturer, but they've got some conditions in mind and they want to actually do good for the world rather than just find a place that's going to sell it cheaply so they can make the best possible profit. What would you suggest that people do to start that journey? I didn't have a lot of resources, so I couldn't send out a team around the world investigating factories, but I was a member of the fair trade system in Australia, Flow, Fair Trade Label Organization. So we were able to rely on their advice. They would actually tell us which factories had applied to become fair trade certified. And if we found a factory that we thought was okay, then we would actually link them up to Fair Trade International and the Fair Trade Label Organization worked with them to become accredited. Since then, there's other labels that have popped up. There's Fairware, there's the Worldwide Responsible Apparel Program, and there's B Corp. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with B Corp, but I've heard it before, yeah. 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 I mean, so I'd probably suggest reaching out to them hmm. and asking them which factories do they work with? Could they please yeah. introduce us here? Yeah. It's easier now than it was years ago. And amazingly, when I started, it was actually a lot harder to find stuff online, but now it's quite easy as well. The only problem you've got, what we find now, there's a lot of greenwashing and there's even ethical washing going on. If anyone's actually telling you that they can supply you ethical clothing or ethical footwear, you've got to ask them to provide the evidence. And I know with the fair trade system, it's actually hard to get fair trade accreditation. It's even harder to keep it. So I'm pretty confident if a factory's got fair trade label organization accreditation, they are doing the right thing. And even B Corp accreditation. Some of the other ones, I'd be cautious. And what's been the biggest challenge for you to stick to your original mission? There's been a few, there's been a few challenges. I'm trying to think, okay. The first challenge was not realizing that during research, people say one thing, but as consumers do another. So. If you ask most of your friends, do they oppose the use of child labor, sweatshop and slave labor, they're all going to say, yes, they do. The question is, what do they do when they go shopping? Yeah. So mm. I didn't realize that. I'd see all this research about this growing trend for ethical consumerism. And that research is coming out all the time. Every month is some research paper shows that Australians are becoming more conscious or ethical or, or green in their shopping. But the reality is that. It's nowhere near as big as everyone thinks it is. And it's not just individuals, it's also organizations. Mm. Yeah. Between what people and organizations say and what they actually do. So over the years, there's been quite a few other brands pop up in this eco-ethical fashion space and they've all folded. And these are businesses set up by people with a lot more resources and a lot more ability than I ever had. And they've just come and gone. And I think that's because they really believed with that research. I've always run a pretty lean business model. So I've managed to kind of survive during the hard time. So yeah, don't believe all the research that's out there. Yeah. I think you've got to mm. take it with a grain of salt. Other stuff, I've always been under-resourced. As the next teacher, I didn't have much funds to start with. 
And I've had to invest a lot of money into building up our stock, our inventory. But also a large part of what I was doing in the early days was educating consumers, not just individuals, but also organizations. And that took up a lot of energy and a lot of resources that I never really had. Looking back on it, I would have tried to raise equity, or raise money from investors at a much earlier kind of stage. I'm only really getting around to it now because I keep on putting it off. But if I knew then what I know now, yeah, I would have gone to investors much earlier. And I look at brands like Outland Denim, who are doing amazing work, and they're really the only other brand in Australia who, you know, we look up to. And uh, but they've raised a lot of money from private investors before they even launched their brand. Yeah, I think uh, bootstrapping, though there is some positives, it's also the harder path to take. Yeah, there's another lesson I learned. Yeah. So you're in the process sure. of looking and finding investors now. Do you, have you got any advice for anyone that sort of might be in a similar situation, some things that you've learned already in that process? I'd be doing it as early as possible and uh, document everything from the early days. I still need to get around to doing an updated business plan and, a, and a, an updated strategic growth plan and an updated financial plan. This is all stuff that I should have had years ago. So if you can do it while you're still small, it's a lot easier than when you become a lot bigger. Okay. I wish I'd yeah. known that back then. Yeah. So you have a physical store and also the website too. Um, got a physical store where we've got a B2C channel. So that's through our physical store and also through our online chat, but we also have a B2B business where about 50% of our business is actually producing products for other organizations. Right. And yeah, that also takes up a lot of resources, a lot of my time, but it helps us with cash flow. During the past six months, some of our biggest customers have been Monash University, RMIT, the Australian Greens, KPMG. A lot of organizations come to us because they need help sourcing branded merchandise, which is genuinely ethically made and genuinely eco-friendly. But the reality is I should be just focusing on the online space and that's in the long term, that's what I want to do is just focus online. Even now with brick and mortar, we were actually doing quite well with our brick and mortar store up until about January this year. The shop's been open for about two years, and but just over the past three or four months, we really noticed things have actually slowed down with the door sales. The online sales probably dropped by about 5%, but they're coming back now. It's hard. You can only learn by experience, but yeah, I would have maybe just focus on the one part rather than trying to do too many things, but I needed to do that for cash flow. So you've got a lot of stock to manage and I've been in situations where there's been a lot of stock to manage. And one of the hardest things I've found was having stock that devalues quite quickly in the computer memory business. So you have to make sure that you aren't holding any old stock and that you're rotating it efficiently. Yeah, I suppose um, we're lucky in that degree because sneakers are sneakers. They don't really deteriorate and they don't go to style. I mean, it's a classic sneakers. People have been buying that sneaker of ours, you know, since 2007. So not that we've got that stock that sold, but uh, you know, I suppose one mistake I probably did was I actually expanded to too many different lines. I introduced round neck t-shirts and then I introduced V-neck t-shirts. Then I introduced long sleeve t-shirts and then I introduced singlets as well. I think that was a bit too much, but I think my wife's going to hear this, but she was telling me quite early that I should just focus on footwear and uh, yeah, on reflection, I think she was right. I should have just focused on that part. But what I find with Etico is that 
people aren't buying our products because it's a shoe or a t-shirt. They're buying into the brand ethos, our brand values. And so we do get people buying sneakers, buying t-shirts, buying hoodies, buying underwear. They're buying into the whole brand. But if you're talking about what would have been easy as far as running a business, then I think having a smaller range would have been a lot easier. I'm actually even thinking about starting to cull some lines as well and just to focus more on just a few lines, the ones that generate the most income for us as well. But then you get so, customers saying, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Yeah. We introduced socks a couple of years ago and now socks are one of our best sellers. Yeah. I think you win some, you lose some, don't you? You uh, get customer feedback and you iterate and you try it out and some things work well and some don't. And the hard part for, I think for a business owner is to take those things that you did try that you thought were really going to work well, but didn't once you test them is to then back it out. <laughs> the other thing is I also learned is that it's one thing to actually have the products, but the other thing is actually to market those products. Yeah. I know our singlets are actually quite good products, but we've never really marketed them as such. We've never done any PR or kind of any work with any influencers or done any kind of fashion shoots or yeah. Yeah. But um, I suppose I've got a version of ADHD. I get bored quite easily, so I want to do different products. And even now I'm looking at expanding our footwear into vegan leather. So I'm not sure whether you know much about the vegan leather market. It's quite substantial, not just in Australia, but internationally. But most of the vegan leather products sold in Australia are made from plastic. So I've been wanting to do an eco-friendly vegan leather for many years. But it's only just now that a genuinely eco-friendly version of vegan leathers coming to the market. The problem is it's not cheap. So I'm not sure whether I should just go down the path now and just sell it at a premium price or should I wait until the prices come down a bit? I know there is a market there and I'm finding it hard not to jump into it. Was it because it's got to be made from recycled bottles and the technology had to catch up to make something that really was like a leather product, but obviously not. Is that why you had to wait? Yeah, basically we had to find a material which was compostable and, and therefore it had to be plant-based as well. And uh, about five, six years ago, some companies introduced pineapple leather and then someone introduced an apple leather and then someone else introduced a cactus leather, oh. but there was still only about 30 to 35% plant-based. The rest of the material was still polyurethane, so you couldn't compost it. It was still largely plastic. The past year. There have been some companies, one of them, which Andrew Forrester's just put a lot of money into. So he obviously sees a lot of potential. Andrew Forrester, the mining magnet, also yep. the owner of RM Williams. So yeah, I can see RM Williams going down this path pretty soon as well. We've made samples. We're ready to roll. It just the question is whether we should do it when we have to retail the shoes for around $300 a pair, which we're going to have mm. to do if we sell them now. I suppose it's a catch 22 and there's got to be sufficient volume there for the manufacturing costs to come down so that then the retail price can come down. And at some point, somebody somewhere has got to start selling them because otherwise nothing's going to happen. And I'm worried that if I don't do it now, someone else yeah, is going to, a lot more resources going to come along and be the first in Australia. So I've just talked myself into doing it. Yeah. Now I've just got to find <laughs> the capital. Yeah. Yeah, now I've just got to find the $100,000, which I think is going to cost me to get it onto the market. Yeah. Wow. About so, between um, seventy and 100000 Yes, I think it will cost me to actually do it. Golly. So looking back over the years since 2000, 
three, as far as the, your marketing goes, what do you feel was your best bang for buck with the different things you've done over the years? I know, I suppose building our community, we've got about 27,000 people who subscribe to our newsletter. The reality is only about 11,000 of them are active, but I've built up that database by going to festivals and doing presentations and getting the people to sign up. We don't have a lot of people dropping out of the newsletter. It's a pretty minuscule amount of people who unsubscribe, but that's been a pretty good investment as far as the return on investment. Other stuff is networking. Maybe it's an advantage of being first on the market, but because I've done a few presentations and been around for a while, we've been featured in quite a few high school and university textbooks and still are. And these are national textbooks as well. I know at the beginning of every year, we're going to have quite a few young people looking at our website, largely because of these textbooks. But how do you put a value on something like that? It's a pretty good piece well, of evergreen marketing there, isn't it? Textbooks stay around, they get recycled. They yeah, they come. use that. It goes a case study. We're featured in the high school design and technology textbook as a case study in sustainable design. Mm. We're featured as a social enterprise in the high school business studies textbook. I have been featuring quite a few university textbooks, marketing textbooks, in case studies on guerrilla marketing or ethical marketing. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it all been a good investment. I also made quite a few postcards that over the years that I've given out at different events with a discount code. And we continue to give them out in our shop, outside of our shop at festivals or when I do presentations and they've been good value for money. Yeah. We've done Facebook advertising, Google ads, and in the early days, in the good old days, and if I knew then what I know now, I would have put a lot more money into <laughs> Facebook ads, but I can remember doing eight, 10 times plus returns on spend for some of the Facebook advertising we were doing years ago. But uh, you know, building your own kind of community, or your own kind of fan base. So we've got lots of people who've been buying our products for many years and they've been our best ambassadors because they spread the word. And it's not just the B2C businesses brought to us. A lot of those individual fans that we've got have also encouraged their workplaces to source from us. I'd yeah, encourage people there actually trying to build up their own community of advocates or fans. Yeah or passionate fans. We've <laughs> built a brand that stands for something and that's, we stand for something that a lot of other people should believe in as well. It's not just a fashion brand. So there's some good advice there for people who are starting out as well. So do you have any other, perhaps a final piece of advice for someone who's thinking about starting a business fresh and that they want to have their ethical and sustainable aspects of manufacturing to be part of their business too? Have you got any advice for somebody who might be just starting out? I think it's a lot easier for someone who's starting out to go down this path than there is for an established business who'll need to change the way they operate. So if you could start afresh from the very beginning, find your suppliers, but make sure they have got accreditations that are credible. The other thing I'd encourage people to do is to build a team of people around them rather than just relying on yourself. Because as you grow, it's actually really hard to do everything on your own. And uh, over the years, I've had some good people working with me, but I wasn't able to retain them because I've never been in a position to be able to pay them the rates they deserved or wanted. 
on reflection, I should have worked out other ways of retaining good staff. What else? Yeah, the other thing I mentioned to you before is, you know, I'd encourage people to go down this eco-ethical path, but don't believe that all the hype that there's a huge market out there too, because it's in line with your values. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is also, you can't rely on this whole eco-ethical aspect to generate business. You've got to give people some other reason to buy your product. Years ago, I remember coming across a book called The Myth of the Ethical Consumer. The author's name was a guy called Tim Devaney. And I met him at a marketing conference where I was asked to give a talk on guerrilla marketing and he did a presentation on his book. And I was pretty depressed after sitting through his presentation because he basically explained the gap between what people say during the research and what they should do as consumers. And I said, look, based on what you just told me, I might as well give up and go back to high school teaching because I can't afford to risk my family's future on some dodgy research. And he said, no, what you've got to do is you've got to give people some other reasons to buy your product. So you've got to make them affordable, which is different from cheap. So you might have to charge a bit more, but don't charge a lot more. Mm. You've got to make it accessible. You've got to make it easy for people to buy your products. And in the early days, if it wasn't for the internet, if it wasn't for online sales, I would have been in trouble years ago because we struggled to find any retailers to stock our products. So the online marketplaces, we've been operating for quite a few years. So you've got to make it affordable. You've got to make it accessible. Uh, you've got to make it good quality because they might buy it once, but if it's crap quality, they're not going to come back. Mm. And it's much cheaper to get a repeat customer than it is to find a new customer. And then finally, you've got to make it cool. You've got to make it appealing. So that's one thing I've been trying to do with the Etico brand for quite a while is actually to make it a, a cool brand. I think we've still got a long way to go in making a cool brand, but I look at some of the other brands that have come and gone and uh, we get a lot of positive feedback about the appearance of the brand. So Nick, if people have questions and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? You'll find me on LinkedIn. So you're more than welcome to reach out to me, but we've got our website, www etiko.com.au and we're on Facebook and on Instagram as well. So feel free to mess with me either way. And uh, finally, if you're ever in Brunswick on Sydney Road, Brunswick, we're at 536 Sydney Road, Brunswick. So you're more than welcome to drop in. Nick, your time today is most appreciated. Thank you very much for coming on the show and being my guest today. Thanks for the opportunity to share our story. Thanks so much for watching or listening. If you found this episode useful, here's two ways I can help you grow your business for free. Firstly, subscribe to my YouTube channel at rodsyt.com. And secondly, you can join my free group at rodsgroup.com. And finally, leave me a five-star review so that I can reach some amazing people that I can bring on as guests on the show. I'll catch you in the next episode.